Well, good morning. It's great to be with you today. Uh, it's always an exciting time whenever we can come together and gather uh, to celebrate the word of God and the miracle of his son, Jesus. Um, and so we're, we're thankful to be here. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about my grandparents. Um, now, many of you um, have grandparents that are similar to mine. I s still think mine are or were the, the best. And if we need to arm wrestle over it later, that's fine. But uh, people from my grandparents' generation had a different understanding of what words meant. What I mean by that is, Words were not just thrown around. Claims were not just made unless somebody could actually back them up, right? The, the, the whole idea was that, well, if you're going to tell somebody that you're going to do something, then you do it. And, uh, you know, your word was your bond. And so you might either be right on the edges of that generation yourself or certainly have known people that are from this generation where, uh, guess what? Words made a huge difference because they were attached to objective facts, like things that are actually true. It's, it's kind of like, remember um, back in the good old days when all of our currency was tied to, what, remember what it's called? The gold standard? Because you were supposed to have the gold that could live up to the promises that you've made. And we all know that ain't happening. And so the same phenomenon is actually occurring and has been this shift, cultural shift from saying things and then having to live up to them and prove them and grounding them in truth and objective reality. And, and instead, it's all based on, well, how we feel about things rather than whether or not those things are true. I can't be the only one that has experienced this, right? Uh, so let me give you an example when it comes to my grandparents. Again, the, the, these folks were from a generation where words mattered, promises mattered. And so uh, they, they subscribed to this thing. When I was a kid, I used to go over to their, their place and they would have this little magazine called the Reader's Digest. <laughs> Some of you know. Uh, I think it's still a thing. I'm not quite sure. But uh, when I was, was, would be at their house, I would find the, the Reader's Digest. And you know, the whole miracle of this little publication is that it, it takes all these big articles and big important things and kind of condenses it down into more bite-sized readable things. And so I, I would read that. And I, I always say, hey, this is, this is really good stuff. Now, mostly, I'll be honest, mostly I was in it for the jokes because they had some good jokes in there. But then, the, you know, the stories were good. But, but the company had built trust with a generation of people because it was started in 1922 based on the idea that we can get good quality fact-based information and we can put it out to people. Well, so, somewhere along the line, as, as the company continued to evolve and time continued to pass, well, they realized, well, if we want to make more money at this, we got to change things up. Uh, and so then began the era of the sweepstakes. Some of you know what this is, too. Now, others of you that are like, what are you talking about? Maybe this rings a bell. Uh, anybody here of uh, Publishers Clearinghouse, right? Come on, no one? Really? Nobody's ever heard of Publishers Clearinghouse. Really? Okay, yes, thank you very much. I appreciate your part. It goes easier when you participate, folks. Uh, okay, so Publishers Clearinghouse used to have this guy. Anybody remember his name? Ed McMahon, Ed McMahon, okay? And there was the prize patrol, and you were always kind of like peering out your front door behind the curtains to see if old Ed might be driving up with a giant cardboard check to make all of your wildest dreams come true. Well, the Reader's Digest didn't have Ed McMahon, but they did start sending letters to people, and in these letters, they started to imply that, hey, if you just buy more of these little trinkety things, you know, more... Um, more little CD sets, more books, more calendars, more knick-knacky things, uh, then you will not just increase your chances to win a big prize, but it was guaranteed. You were guaranteed to have this enormous payday. Well, we all know that they had no intention of actually living up to this. It was so carefully worded. But my grandparents, again, they got this letter and they were like, oh, 
Well, if we do these things, then we're guaranteed this particular outcome. And so no matter how many times we tried to explain to them, look, this, this is not actually true. They could not conceive of a world where someone would lie about something, write it in a letter, and send it in the mail. They were like, well, but I got the letter in the mail. So it has to be true. You can't do this. Well, as we all know, of course you can. And as we continue to live in a world that gets more and more distanced from objective reality, the claims that are made are wilder and wilder. Because, I don't know if you know this, I don't want to be kind of a spoiler, but we are living in a post-truth society. At least in the modern culture of America. Post-truth. Now, you might be asking yourself, what in the world does post-truth mean? Because it sounds like maybe it means after-truth. That's not quite right. I'm going to read you the definition because I don't know if you know this, but in 2016, the Oxford Dictionary named post-truth as the word of the year. Its, its use has increased from the time it made it into the dictionary in the early 2000s. Its use increased 2,000% in recent years. So it was the word of the year in 2016. Post-truth. What does it mean? Relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. In other words, objective facts, what's really true, has to take a back seat to how I feel about it. If I don't like it, then it must not be true. Now, what, what's the outcome of that? Well, we've got a lot of people that run around saying things like, well, that's not my truth. So we've made truth into what we want it to be so that we can feel better about things. Now, we might think, well, we're, we're the only ones that could conceive of such a thing. But no, this, this has been going on a long time. I mean, even if you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, you'll realize Adam and Eve couldn't even get their story straight when they were, who, who gave who the fruit and what is, what's happening here, right? So we've told these stories about how we feel to protect ourselves from being challenged, from having our worldview challenged or anything like that. It more is rooted in how we feel about it, much more so than whether or not we can actually prove it's true. And this has just turned into something that we accept. And so my question for us today is, well, living in a post-truth world, what do we do with the claims of Jesus? What do we do with the claims of Jesus? Because we see this happening all the time. Uh, all the time. People have kind of set up their own Jesus buffet, and they like what he says about this, and they like what he says about this, and well, they like what he says about this. But I don't like that, I don't like that, I don't like that, I don't like that. And so we kind of pick and choose, and then we create this version of my truth. And then we have entire, whether you want to call it uh, churches, denominations, religious structures, whatever it is, that are then created around somebody's interpretation or idea of what the word of God says and does and is and all this other kind of stuff. And meanwhile, Jesus himself stands outside all of this and wonders, what, what has happened? Where, where did you folks go? Because remember, he's the one that claims about himself that he is truth. He is truth. But what do we say about that? How do we respond to that? How do we react to that? Even if we say, oh yeah, I, I know that. I've been a Christian for my whole life. I've grown up in church. I know when Jesus says he is the truth, I know that to be true. But is that true in all areas of your life? Is Jesus really Lord of all of your life? Or is Jesus Lord of, well, just the things that you're willing to let him be Lord over? And what does that mean in a post-truth world when we're confronted with information, words from Jesus that shake us to our core, that don't make us feel good, that might even offend us? What do we do then? How do we respond? Do we just say, well, that's it, Jesus. I'm done. 
Or do we actually take his word for the truth that it is and let his word guide us and lead us through the power of his Holy Spirit? Or do we choose, well, you know what? I know what's best for me. I know what my truth is. And therefore, I'm going to be guided by that. I'm going to be guided by my worldview and what I think. And I'm going to find a whole bunch of other people. And it's very easy to do. I'm going to surround myself with people that all agree with me. And that way, I never have to feel bad because I'm only going to be around the people that will continue to tell me I'm right. And what do I want more than anything? I want to be right. Not because it's objectively true, but because I feel good about it. Okay? And so when we're talking about the claims that Jesus has made about himself, I want to know, how do you react to the claims in this day and age? We're going to see, we're going to walk through, we've been working our way through chapter seven. This is, this is the end of chapter seven. And we've seen all through this journey that there's been this conflict brewing, this division, this debate that's all brewing around not necessarily what Jesus has been doing, although that's part of it, but a lot has come to the service, surface about what Jesus has been saying about the claims that he is making. He's offending everyone, including the ones that were following him after he'd done these amazing things. Remember in chapter six, uh, well, first of all, the conflict started one chapter previous, Ch started in chapter five. Remember Jesus healed this guy at the pool of Bethesda and, and he told the guy, hey, pick up your mat and walk. Oh, it was on the Sabbath. So that was a deal breaker right there. The religious leaders said, uh-uh, this guy is a lawbreaker. He's up to no good. And it says in, in, in chapter five, verse 18, that it was at that point that they started plotting to kill him for not following the rules. Okay. Well, then chapter six came along. Jesus is now uh, up north. He's in Galilee and he's doing amazing things. And the, the crowds are swelling around him. He's so popular. Why? Because he's doing things like feeding amazing amounts of people, thousands of people. He's feeding with, with just nothing but creating the food on the spot. Miraculous. So he's got all these followers, but then he starts saying things. It'd be fine if he was just feeding people, but then he has to go and open his mouth. And when he opens his mouth, he starts saying things like, I am the bread from heaven. I came down from heaven and I am the bread of life. And then he went on and said, if you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, then there is no life in you. Well, now that is offensive. Now, if this is your first time at church and you hear that, I don't blame you for wondering what you've just walked into, but the reality is that Jesus says things that challenge us all the time. It, sh they, it shatters, his words shatter whatever confidence we have in our ability to figure it out. Uh, whatever my truth is, is blown away often when I come into contact with Jesus. And Jesus is not something that we can ignore. Each of us has to answer for ourselves how we respond and how we react to Jesus. If you were to make a list, this has been done many times before, but if you were to make a list of the top three, top five, top 10 most influential people in all of human history, Jesus makes the list every time. So Jesus is inescapable. He's here right now with us and his word is being proclaimed. And that's what we're going to pray for right now. Not that you're going to hear something from me, but that the Lord himself will speak through my mouth because only his word can change and transform us from, from dead into new life. And so uh, let's pray for a moment and ask the Lord to be with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness, for your grace, for your mercy. We just ask, ask Lord, now that you have your way here, that you, you do what only you can do. Lord, we have no power that's not given from you. And so we ask now that you come and transform our lives. We, we wait here with great expectation to see what you will do in this place, to see what you will do in our hearts, to turn us away from all of the trappings of the world that lure us in and make promises that they can't ever deliver on. Lord, we turn to you. We confess you as the truth. We thank you, God, for sending Jesus so that we know the truth. 
We ask now that that truth penetrate our hearts and grow in us the desire to be closer than ever before to Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, so we've been talking about this, this conflict. It's escalating. It's growing. He, he, his own followers, the people that had started following him based on all the miraculous things he was doing, even those people had started falling away. So he was no longer popular. By chapter 7, all the massive crowds were all dispersed, and there were a smaller and smaller number of people that were actually following him and listening to him and believing him and trusting him. And so we talked about for the last two weeks that all of the context of chapter seven is around this, this most celebrated Jewish festival of the year called the, the, the Festival of Tabernacles. And so at this, we talked about this, this whole ceremony with the water and, and at the height of the ceremony, the most important part of the entire celebration of the whole eight day thing, uh, we talked about last week that Jesus interrupts it. He's apparently didn't get the memo on how to be a good party guest, but right at the moment of, of the highest importance, look what happens in verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So now if you don't quite understand how those pieces go together, let me clear it up for you. He just repurposed the entire festival and the entire celebration to make it all about himself. Okay. He's saying, Hey, I know you think you know what you're celebrating, but what you are actually celebrating is me and all who are thirsty come to me and drink. He is saying, he's claiming that he himself and he alone is living water. He is living water. So first we had him claiming to be the bread of life, bread from heaven. Now we have him claiming to be living water. And if you drink the living water, you will be given the Holy Spirit of God who then flows out of you, in you and out of you into relationship with other people in the world that God is so desperately trying to reach. So how do we react to that? What, what's our response to that? Because the truth is that the bigness and the boldness of the kinds of claims that Jesus was making was definitely not going unnoticed. People were responding and reacting to the things that Jesus was saying, to the things that Jesus was doing. Look at verse 40. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? So there's a difference of opinion. There's a difference of opinion. The people are searching for the truth about Jesus, but there's different ideas about who Jesus is, what he's come to do, what his purpose is. You know, who is he really? What is he really up to? They're, they're conflicted. And this whole talk about the prophet. You'll notice it doesn't say a prophet. It says the prophet is a direct article. Why does it say the prophet? Well, Moses himself, all the way back in, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, that's where Moses says, one day there will come a prophet who will be straight from God, who will speak with the words of God, and you will listen to him. And so the people were expecting this prophet, the prophet, to arrive on the scene. So some people have said, hey, based on what Jesus has done, based on what he said, he's the prophet. But then other people, because there were also prophecies that talked about this coming Messiah, this anointed one from God, this king that would come from the line of David, who, who would come and restore Israel to all of her former glory, especially in their mind was the glory that was around Israel during the time of the reign of King David. Those were kind of like the, the, the golden age of, of Israel. And so there was this idea that, well, maybe Jesus is the Messiah. Maybe he's the one to restore Israel. And they, they were thinking all of this in political terms. He, maybe Jesus is the one to kick the Romans to the curb and establish this promised kingdom right here where we're, we're going to be back on top. We're going to be in charge. 
And so some people thought, well, maybe this Jesus is the Messiah. But then you heard other people are saying, well, wait a minute now. This something sounds off because is the Messiah supposed to come from Galilee? I, I, don't, I don't know about this. And we'll get into this a little bit later. Remember, there's, there's two different arguments that people are making. Some are saying, well, Jesus can't be the Messiah because uh, we know where he came from. And that's not a location thing. That's a, all of a sudden, they expected the Messiah to arrive uh, suddenly uh, w- without seeing it coming. And so they think, well, Jesus, we, we know him. We know where we know his family. We know his brothers. It, it can't be him because we know too much about him. But then later, it's talking about location. Well, were you born in the right place? And so we'll get into into that because the prophecy was that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But people here, not quite so sure where this Jesus is from. So they're asking questions. So some say he's a prophet or the prophet. Some people say he's the Messiah. Other people, not so sure. Goes on in verse 42, does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. And this is what I want us to think about today. Whether it's here in our scripture or whether it's here in our world or whether it's here in this room or whether it's in your own heart, when Jesus comes into contact with us, when the words and the promises and the claims of Jesus encounter us, we're divided. We're divided, just like these folks. And so in a post-truth world where we make it up based on how we feel, how do you respond to Jesus? How do you respond to the claims that he is making? Because we're often especially, most especially suspicious of Jesus for the simple fact that he doesn't do things our way. He does things his way. We don't like that. We would rather Jesus be the one that we dispatch to do our bidding, to do it our way. But no, Jesus not going to do it. That's part of the conflict that we see here. That's part of the conflict that we have here. People are saying, oh, uh, in our world today, we got no time for this Jesus. Uh, We don't believe anything he says. He's saying things that that hurt my feelings. And therefore, there's, there's no way. Can't be true. Can't be true. But again, this is not something that's, that's new. This division has been going on. And at the beginning of chapter seven, we started to see it show up. Just with Jesus' arrival on the scene, him coming to the festival was already controversial in and of itself. So go back to uh, verse 11. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Now keep that in mind. They're searching for Jesus. They're searching for Jesus because they still have a grievance with him. He blew it in their opinion, in chapter five, when he healed this guy on the Sabbath, and then he, he had the audacity to, to tell the guy, pick up your mat and walk. That's direct violation against the rules. Breaking the law of Moses, uh, in, in their mind, their interpretation of the law of Moses, therefore, Jesus, no good, gotta go. So they're searching for him because they wanna capture him. They're searching for him to arrest him before he does any more damage. That's... Keep that in mind. That's the religious leaders. But among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. So even the people are not able to talk about what their opinions are. They're not able to debate out in the open with this because they're not sure what kind of risk they're going to put themselves at in terms of the authorities. These authorities, these religious authorities, well, they believe they have all the answers and they have the power and the control to disrupt whatever you've got going on if they don't like what you're saying. So people are nervous about this, but Jesus himself and the things that he's saying is creating division. But some people are believing in him. Some people have heard enough. They've concluded, hey, this guy is, he's the real deal. 
And so in verse 32, the Pharisees and the chief priests and the religious leaders, well, they're not going to stand for this. So verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. They sent the guards to arrest him. And so this is the same question that we have to wrestle with today in our context, in our post-truth world. When we're confronted with the claims of Christ that are challenging to us, what do we do? When we are confronted with things that I would even say offend us, what do we do? When the words of Christ challenge our worldview, our preferences, anything about the way that we think we're living our life, the way that we want to do it, what is our response? What is our reaction to that? Are we like the Pharisees and the chief priests and the, and the temple guards here? Or do we have a different reaction? Let me ask it this way. Are you searching to arrest Jesus or are you arrested by him? Okay. Are you searching to arrest Jesus or are you arrested by him? All of us have to deal with Jesus. He, in one way or another, is making himself known to us. He continues to do this in a whole variety of ways. And we then have to choose how we respond to it. Are we going to arrest him or are we going to be arrested by him? Now, of course, the religious leaders in this particular case, they, they want to arrest him because they want to silence him. They want to stop him from saying the things that he's saying, from making the kinds of claims that he's making. But know this, Jesus will not be silenced. He will not be silenced. His words may get twisted around by people with an agenda. His words may, be, may get misquoted and misused by people charting their own course through life. His words may be, you know, kind of slapped on a bumper sticker or painted on a sign as a political power play. We wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> but the truth of God's word remains, regardless of the damage we do to it by trying to purpose it for our own agenda. The truth of God remains. Jesus himself is truth. How do you respond? How do you respond to that? He alone is trustworthy. He alone is faithful. These are the claims he's making. He alone is truth. It's not your truth or my truth. It's that he is the truth. How do you respond? Well, look at this. The temple guards, they had a first-hand uh, incident here where they themselves uh, came back from the mission. Verse 32, they sent the temple guards out to arrest Jesus. Look what happens, starting verse 45. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and the Pharisees asked them, well, why didn't you bring him in? In other words, job not well done, folks. Uh, you went out there with, you had one job, you know, you went out there to arrest Jesus. What happened? What, look at what they say. 46, no one ever spoke the way this man does. The guards replied. In other words, they went to arrest Jesus, but they were arrested by his words. Is that you? Is that you today? Are you arrested by the words of Jesus? Well, these guards had every intention of going and capturing Jesus, every intention of bringing him in, every intention of going out and capturing him, and instead were captured by the things that he was saying. Now, I think all of us, if we, we either read enough or talk to enough people, or maybe we've had these experiences ourselves, uh, we know that there's, there's deep truth in this, this idea it's not just theoretical, but it is the power of God active in his word, in Jesus, in the word made flesh. And, and the Holy Spirit who continues to bring that truth to life as he lives and works in and through us if you're a believer and, and in and through people you know that are believers if you're not a believer. The, the spirit is at work revealing the truth of who Jesus is. And there is power in that, 
So as I was preparing this message, I, I remembered this story that one of my sem seminary friends uh, told me that I think is really powerful. Uh, now, this guy is a retired army ranger. Now, if, if you don't know what an army ranger is, this is like basically special forces, the, the, the elite, the best of the best. And so this, this particular guy served in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, and they were out a, on a kind of a regular thing, regular deal that they were doing, and they had never had any trouble before, never run into any kind of conflict. For whatever reason, small team, team got split apart to do their work, and so it was just him and another guy. And they all of a sudden came under unexpected attack. F firefight like this guy was saying, I I've never seen anything like it before, never experienced anything like it before. Uh, we, we were literally surrounded on all three sides and there was no option to go behind us. And the, the bullets just kept coming and the shooting just continued. And so his, his uh, fellow soldier got shot and mortally wounded. And so now my friend is, is looking at this whole situation. Now he's trained as an army medic, so he's trying to save this guy. And he's looking at this guy. He's, he's used all of the medical supplies that he had available. He's wondering, well, what is going to happen? This, he's certainly going to die, and I'm going to die next. He, he concluded that there was no way out of the situation. The people that could have rescued them were nowhere near. So he thought, this is it. This is the end. And so he closed his eyes and began to pray. Now, in that moment, he's praying. The bullets are continuing. It's, it's very loud. He gets done praying. He opens his eyes. The guy that was right there laying on this makeshift gurney is gone. And he doesn't know what happened. This is his responsibility. He has no idea where this person is. And so he's, well, did somebody take him? Where? And he looks out in the middle of the open area, which is kind of like, now he's surrounded by all of these shooters from all these different places. This man, mortally wounded, walks out into the middle of this whole thing and screams at the top of his lungs, in the name of Jesus, stop! And there wasn't another bullet fired. They were arrested by the name of Jesus, by the power of Jesus. How has that been true in your life? How has that been true if it's happened to you or if it's happened to people you know? How has it been true where you come into contact with the power of Jesus in this way that is arresting? It's so captivating that it stops you in your tracks. Well, this, at least at some level, must have been what these temple guards experienced. They went to do this job. They went to arrest Jesus and instead they were arrested by him, by his words. And so uh, if we look at uh, verse 47 and 49, what, what typically happens when somebody challenges our worldview? Do we like that or not? We, we, could, we could take a quick show of hands, but anybody like it when? No? So when we have strong beliefs, and we think we've got it all figured out. Someone else comes along, starts suggesting that maybe we don't have the full story and, and maybe we don't have it all figured out like we think. Well, what's our typical response? Do we receive that information well? Not usually, right? We're, we're ready to fight about everything because admitting that we might be wrong doesn't make us feel good. And remember, we're living in a world where it's all about how I feel. That's how I determine truth. I surround myself with the people that all say the same things. They all think the same. Maybe they even look like me. They talk like me. We have the same worldview, all that kind of stuff. It's becoming easier and easier to do this, right? I mean, think about social media. Talk about an echo chamber. I, I can just get on. Now, remember when I was talking earlier about when words mattered? Walter Cronkite, for you have to look him up, younger people. But Walter Cronkite was a newscaster for, for decades. And he was always thought of as the most, trust, the most trusted man in America. Okay? Does anybody trust anything the media says now at this point? Well, if you do, I got news for you. Right? 
The media has figured out a way to exploit this whole idea about basing everything on feelings. Advertisers know how to exploit what's going on with everybody's feelings. Political candidates have made entire careers out of exploiting this whole idea. It doesn't matter what the claims are. It only matters how you feel. So Jesus stands outside of all this nonsense and says, well, what do you do about me? Listen to these claims. So either Jesus has an enormous track record of telling one giant whopper after another, or he is exactly who he claims to be. The truth. Not my truth, but the truth. The cosmic truth. But we oftentimes when we're confronted with, with anything about Jesus or our lives in general that we don't like and doesn't make us feel good, well, we're often more concerned about winning the argument than we are about the truth, right? I mean, we can be honest with each other. We, we like to win the argument, even if it isn't true, because it spares us from then feeling bad. And this ultimately is rooted, when you boil it all down, it's ultimately rooted in pride. It's a pride issue. Pride is a, is a very destructive thing. And you watch all the time, maybe this is, is something that, uh, that you struggle with yourself. It's, it's very infectious. And guess what? You will be the last to know that you are the one with the problem. And so God continues to send other people into your life to try to help you with this. And you don't want to hear it. I remember sitting down with a guy and I said, hey, listen, I, I understand what you're, you know, I, I understand your heart. I think this is all great. But uh, I just want to let you know that the way that you're being perceived by other people is, is really troubling in the terms of that you're, you're pushing people further and further away and I, I know that's not your intention. I know that's not what you desire to do. And he said to me, he pushed, pushed himself back from the, from the desk first, which I thought was nice. But he said, uh, Bob, you know, my entire life, people have told me I have an ego problem. And I don't know what to tell them other than they're wrong. <laughs> okay. So the last one to know is us because it doesn't make us feel good when we have to suck it up and say, wow, I might be wrong. I might have something to learn. We don't like it. Well, these folks didn't like it either. And uh, so the response, the religious leaders, after, after the guards come back empty-handed, they've been arrested by the words of Jesus. Uh, it, guess what? Just like us, uh, we can go from um, zero to outrage in 0, 0.0 seconds. We're, we're, we're primed for outrage. These folks are too. So here come the insults. You ready for this one? Verse 47. You mean he has deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Ah, okay. So now we've insulted multiple people. They insulted the, the guards because they didn't bring Jesus back. But now they've insulted anybody who said that they believed in Jesus. Why? Because, well, these people are the experts. We've got the religious elite, the, the experts in the law, the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests. They are the, the, the cream of the crop when it comes to religious culture. And so they know all the answers. How dare this Jesus show up on the scene and start telling anybody anything else. They're the experts. Now, I don't know if this maybe sounds familiar to the world that we're living in right now, but we've got lots of people that are claiming to be experts about Jesus, what Jesus is all about, and how to interpret the things that he said, and so on, so on, so on, so on. And then we go so far as to say, well, I'm only going to hear the words of Jesus proclaimed to me by somebody that I know agrees with me. And so right now, some of you are probably hoping I say something. Because we, that's how we pick out preachers, don't we? Well, well, I want somebody that makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside. But I'm here to tell you, it ain't about me. It's about Jesus. He is the truth, and I'm sorry if you're offended. But I also am not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> because we need to be offended. We need to be offended. We need to be arrested. 
by Jesus. So will we receive him? Because the truth is when we are blinded by our own pride, we can't see the truth about Jesus. That's the amazing thing about pride is that when we turn inward, we spend all of our time navel gazing and thinking it's all about us. Then we miss the truth about who Jesus really and truly is. Our pride blinds us to this truth. And so God sends people to intervene. God sends people in our lives all the time to intervene. This is no exception. Look at verse uh, 50. We're going to hear a familiar face back on the scene, all the way back from, some, from chapter 3. Now we have everybody, ladies and gentlemen, Nikki D. Nicodemus. Remember him? Thank you for laughing. Uh, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? Just pause that right there for just a second. Now, think about that. Nicodemus, he's one of them. He's a Pharisee. In the interaction that he had with Jesus in chapter 3, Jesus actually called him Israel's teacher. That means he's about as elite as it gets. He's the, the upper echelon of the elite. He's a religious expert. And here he is the one that's putting a challenge to the interpretation that the rest of these religious leaders have about this subject. Now, all of a sudden they came to their senses and they realized, oh man, we've really got this wrong. And then they all got a guitar out and they sang Kumbaya. Not so much. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you'll find that the prophet does not come out of Galilee. Now that is about as big of an insult as you can throw. They know where Nicodemus is from, but even worse, these are not even factual arguments they're using. These are the religious leaders. They know, they know the scripture. They know what's happened. They know the, the, the history here. Jonah was from Galilee. Nahum was from Galilee. Hosea was likely from Galilee. Even Elijah was probably from Galilee. So the idea that they're saying no prophet comes from Galilee is totally factually inaccurate, but it doesn't matter because they don't feel good about the way that they're being challenged. And so the people in this particular case, just like we are multiple times, the people here are blinded to the truth about Jesus because of their pride, because of their ego, because they're the ones saying that they've got it all figured out. And so in this world that we're living in right now, how does it play out for you? I see in this time we spend in chapter seven, I see three different groups of people. I'm just going to touch on each of these groups briefly. The first I would call consumers. We see consumers. These are people that have been hanging around Jesus because they're deriving some kind of benefit. They've, they've either been fed or healed or, or something along those lines where they are experiencing the benefits of Jesus and they are loving that. They want that to continue. They're consuming that information. They're consuming it, okay? And uh, they're consuming the religious goods and services. Now that can oftentimes be a, a lot of us in these environments, can it? We can just show up and we can participate and we can gain something, gain or derive some kind of benefit from the truth about Jesus. But when our faith is challenged, then those are the first folks that are out the door. Those are the first folks that say, no, I, I don't like this. I like Jesus when he's this way. I don't like Jesus when he's this way. I like Jesus when he agrees with me. I don't like Jesus when he doesn't. Can't we just have a silent Jesus that just does what I want him to do? That's consumers. The second group is the cautious. The cautious. Now, as we've talked about, uh, look at verse 12 and 13. Among him, uh, people were saying that he's a good man. Others say, no, he deceives people. Uh, no one's going to say anything about it because the reality is there's uncertainty. That people think, well, I'm starting to get a better idea of who this Jesus is, but I'm not quite sure. I got more questions. Uh, 
People are always doing this today, right? They're trying to figure out, they're searching for the truth about Jesus. But are we really looking for Jesus or are we looking for Jesus to fulfill our expectations? Those are two different things, but we spend a lot of time chasing down Jesus to try to fit him into our worldview rather than adopting the worldview that he's giving us because he is the truth. But then here we have uh, t- verse 26 and 27. They notice that he's out, Jesus is out speaking publicly and nobody's saying anything to him. They haven't shut him down. So maybe the authorities have actually concluded that this guy is the Messiah. He is the prophet. He is the one that we're expecting and just nobody's said it yet. And so they're thinking like, well, okay, I'm, I want to I be on board, maybe, but maybe I don't. I, I don't know. I'm conflicted. And so the, the, it's, the, these people are cautious Then there's this whole uh, debate over the location. Well, he's not born in the right place. Well, he actually was born in the right place. He was born exactly where God had ordained him to be born that fulfilled the prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so he does have the right, not only the right genealogy, he's got the right birth location, but they're still cautious. And then the third group of these folks, uh, I would see both then and now, are the people I would call the convinced. And, and the convinced, well, it cuts both ways, right? Because you can be convinced that Jesus is who he says he is, or you can be convinced that Jesus is either a lunatic, or he's a liar, deceiver, demon-possessed, whatever. But he certainly is not the truth, nor is he trustworthy. That's kind of this whole thing that we've been seeing throughout the Gospel of John, this this binary thing. It's either light, day, day, night, uh, or light, dark, day, night, or belief and unbelief. It's one or the other. And a lot of times we like to try to pretend that we can sort of stand in the middle and be cautious, like group number two. We can be cautious. We can kind of take in all the evidence, evaluate it, and decide you've already made a decision at that point. Because back in John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, if you don't believe in him, then you stand condemned already. So it's already over. Are you going to live in the truth of who Jesus is? Or are you going to continue to reject it? People come down on both sides of that all the time, right? You know him and I know him. Maybe you live in a family where uh, either your own children have walked away from faith or your brother or your sister or your parents or your friends or whatever. You've all heard the same proclamations, the same truth about who this Jesus is, the same preaching, and yet somebody's ears are open and somebody else says, that's really not for me. Well, what is it for you? What is it for you today? What do you do with his claims? Are you, are you searching to arrest Jesus or... Are you arrested by him? Because the truth is, he's made a lot of claims, made a lot of audacious claims. Uh, here, Here are just some of the claims that Jesus makes about himself. Think about this in terms of your own life, your own spiritual journey. How do you respond and react to these claims? Jesus says he came down from heaven, sent by God the Father. Matter of fact, that he and the Father are one. They're one. That Jesus has eternally existed. Okay, that he's come and he is the savior of the world. He's the savior of the world, not the savior just of Israel, but the savior of the world. If we will believe in him and trust him, he's our savior. That he is the final judge and he's been given the authority to do the final judgment, to determine our eternal destiny. Will we spend eternity with him? as a child of God, or will we not? He's made these claims that he's the one that has the authority to determine that. He's made the claim that he's the bread of heaven. He's the living water. That that he is the only way to have a restored relationship with God. Otherwise, there is no way. I am the way, the truth, the life. It's all fulfilled in him. That all who believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Is that you today? Maybe it's, it's you right now in this moment receiving these promises that Jesus makes to you. 
He's also made the claim that he alone has the power and the authority to raise the dead. He can raise the dead. We'll, we'll see this actually happen a little bit later uh, in John chapter 11. He's the fulfillment of the law of Moses, much like how he stood up in the, in the festival and he says, hey, this is really about me. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. All of God's promises have a yes in Jesus, that he is the son of God. He's the light of the world. He's the resurrection. He's the anointed one. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the savior. How do you respond to those claims? Do you recognize him as the truth? Or are you willing to just keep living in my truth? Now, why should we believe in him? I mean, honestly, in a post-truth world, people make claims all the time. The bigger the claim, the more attention it gets. These are the biggest claims anyone has ever made, ever. Why should we believe him? Well, he was nailed to a Roman cross, about 33 AD, outside the hill, uh, on the hill, outside of Jerusalem. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crucified for our sins, for all of our shortcomings, for all, for all of the ways that we have and continue to fall short. He died. He was buried in a tomb, dead as dead gets. And yet after three days, he didn't stay dead. Turns out he's not a very good dead guy. He rose again. He rose again and he appeared to hundreds of people that received him and accepted him as the truth because he had said this was going to happen. He had forecasted, prophesied that this would be what happened. And then it did happen. He rose again. He met the people. He confirmed that this is the truth of who God is. God came for us, God, through Jesus, died for us. And God, through Jesus, was raised for our salvation. How do you respond to that? Do you live in that truth? Or would you rather keep living in your own truth? He's not post-truth. He is the truth. For that, we thank God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time that we've had together. We thank you that you are merciful and gracious to us, even though we don't deserve it. And God, we thank you for being present here. We thank you that you continue to pour out your Holy Spirit on us and that your Holy Spirit works in and through us to take us to even the places we don't want to go, but we know you're sending us so that more and more of this beloved world can hear the good news, the grace, mercy, salvation of you, Jesus. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We ask that you continue to lead and guide us and that we have the courage and strength to follow you more closely than we ever have before. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.